I wonder how your uh, proverbial fence-sitting is going right now. That is, we all struggle to commit, don't we? To really kind of come off the fence and and jump into something and uh, really commit to make up your mind. Uh, For example, over the Christmas period, I guess most of us will be invited to a party or two at some point, won't you? And the invite says the party starts at eight. But what do you do? Well, you get there slightly late. And you perhaps make sure that you have a good early exit strategy as well if things get a little bit tough in the conversation department. Now, we sit on the fence, don't we? We hedge against uh, and what we will perceive as time wasted. I'm, I know I realise I'm in danger of never being invited to a party ever again here, uh, but there we go. You know it's true. We struggle to wholeheartedly commit, don't we? And in many ways, it's a matter of control for us, isn't it? In life and in love, declaring your hand, exposing your heart, showing people who you are. You know, you're kind of having to jump off a fence, aren't you? Planting your feet in a position. This is who I am. This is what I want. It could be a political view, going to a party, telling someone you, what you think of them. We live in a time that being half-hearted seems to be kind of totally the trend of what you'd love to do, isn't it? It means people lack commitment. And it means that actually people can criticise and grumble about absolutely everything because they aren't behind anything. Well, Jesus has come, and in his coming, he's invited us to be part of his good eternal kingdom. And that is pictured in a number of places as the greatest party ever. Because through faith in Jesus and his work to secure our place in the party of all parties, we're guaranteed a place at the eternal banquet of the King of Kings. And as we wait before that eternal party begins in the heavens, we have a guarantee of that place in our hearts by the Spirit and the assurance of it clearing God's word. And therefore, how should we live? Well, we should live in eager expectation of that party. Our feet planted firmly in, I'm in that party, I'm heading there. Wholehearted devotion to the one who secured our place in the party. But the reality for so many of us is that we forget to remind ourselves of that party. Of that eternal banquet. And begin to think that perhaps we're, we're missing out on other things as we wait for it. And we hedge our bets. We sit on the fence. And our joyful wholeheartedness of following and serving Jesus becomes a, a kind of a half-hearted, uh, joyless search for something better. Like in the parable of the banquet, for example. Flip through, uh, forward, ten chapters. Matthew 22. Are we in danger of becoming those who are more consumed with life now and ignore the invitation from Jesus? Let's get real here. It is possible to come to church every week. It is possible to believe in the truth of who Jesus is. It is possible, though, to be so consumed with the things that we can collect, the experiences that we can enjoy, the holidays we can go on, that we will miss out on the eternal banquet to come. And our passage today is really a challenge from Jesus to respond to him. 
And not just in our minds, not just necessarily in our hearts, but with our whole lives, wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And what does that look like? It means committing to the truth of who he is. And he shows us that is the best way. That's the way of joy and a blessing. In a sense, what if you imagine you're sort of sat on a fence with one toe, kind of wanting these experiences a bit, one toe wanting to follow Jesus, and you're sort of sat on the fence here. Well, I'm afraid Jesus, if you allow him through his word and by his spirit, is about to boot you off. I guess many of us do need a bit of a kick. I wonder how you're going to respond to Jesus. Are you wholeheartedly following Jesus? I mean, uh, just a, a little assessment in your own minds. You know, husbands, you know, fathers, are you leading your family to wholeheartedly follow Christ? All of us, as you, as you examine your life, what do people, as they look at you, think defines you? Do they look at you and go, oh, there's someone who loves to travel? They look at you and say, oh, there's someone who, they love their sport and going to see sport and talking to us about sport. Do they look at you and say, oh, I can have a really good political conversation or a modern art conversation. I haven't a clue what that's about, but there we go. You know, do they look at you and say, there's someone who loves cooking or someone who loves fashion or career, or career. As people look at you in your office, in the local area, your friends, What is the thing that defines you in their heart and mind? If it is not someone who loves to serve and honour Jesus, well, please listen. Two points very quickly. Refusing the truth leads to destruction. And secondly, obeying the truth leads to joy. We're going to head to verse 50. So uh, we'll we'll go and read that in a bit. Firstly, refusing the truth leads to destruction. And and cast your eyes down at the passage. You see that begins in verse 38. And we've got the Pharisees back. There there they are. There's a request from them. Is it a genuine request? No, I don't think so. Look at it. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now these are the elite men of God of the time. And they've seen so much evidence of Jesus' power. Just last week they saw him witness, they witnessed him, um, him heal a man with an evil spirit. They don't need any more evidence, but they want a sign. They want something spectacular to happen, perhaps from heaven. And in essence, they're acting a little bit like those you know, little children with their fingers in their ears screaming, la, 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 when you're trying to explain something that they don't want to hear. They've had so, so many signs. I guess the problem is that they're not living by faith, they're living by sight. And because they have no faith, they don't want the evidence to be convinced of who Jesus is. In a sense, they're already convinced in their unbelief. And they aren't open to the truth, they just want him dead. And Jesus is aware of this. He knows their hearts and hence the strong rebuke in the following verse. Look at it, verse 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, Jesus says. And think about it. They're they're asking for a sign, which it does seem like an honest request, doesn't it? Show us, Jesus, how powerful and amazing you are. But if you remember just a few verses back, their hearts and their minds were already plotting to kill Jesus. Their hearts are 
kind of pumping with adrenaline as they're plotting and scheming to go, how are we going to get this bloke dead? Well, Jesus says they're spiritually adulterous. In a sense, they're cheating on God. That is, they've known such privilege. They've, they've been schooled in the scriptures. They knew the promises of the Messiah to come. They knew what to look for as the, the son of David would come. But they knew the signs eh, to expect. And yet, even though the long-awaited king stood before them, even though they knew such privilege, even though they were trying to act like these great men of God, in reality, they were cheating on God by simply just closing their hearts and minds down to the truth. You see, my friends, we can appear to do all the right things. And because you are so able, so many of you here at the top of your career, and because you are so able, you can appear to do the right things, to come to church. You get involved on your terms. You give financially on your terms. Oh, all of this is great. Yes. Well, do you realize the Pharisees did all of those things? And they did them a lot better than any of us. And Jesus calls them spiritual adulterers. Why? Because they just haven't allowed God to penetrate their hearts completely. Oh, they hear the truth. They know the truth. Uh, They respond with some kind of moral action that is seen. And oh, everyone knows how wonderful they are. But God hasn't captured their hearts. And it is a terrible and a joyless state. And Jesus doesn't hold back, does he? He kind of brings in two witnesses to condemn them that they would know so well. Firstly, with the sign and the story of Jonah. Now, if you don't know, Jonah's this little short book in the Old Testament. Fantastic story. Read it later. And um, what happens is Jonah is called by God to go and preach to this city called Nineveh. And he runs away from God. He says, no, I can't do that. And he runs away. And eventually he gets thrown off a boat. A big fish swallows him. He spends three days and nights in darkness in the belly of the fish. And eventually he is spewed out into the shores of Nineveh and goes to preach repentance to the people. The people turned. They turned to trust God. But the people of Nineveh, you see, they, they, they had this the sign of Jonah being sort of spewed up. It's a miraculous thing. And then he preached to them. But the people of Nineveh, all they had was this... This guy who was so weak and probably stank of fish as well. And that's all they had from God. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? Note that Jesus has no problem with Jonah being history here. But now Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, they will get a sign of the prophet Jonah. That is, he's saying, one will come, the son of man, as we see in verse 40, and he will, like Jonah, will go through this amazing experience as a sign of being commissioned by God. Not not being spewed out by a fish, but he will come three days and nights. and He will be in darkness at point to his death and resurrection. That will be the sign. The question is, how will they respond? Well, the men and women of Nineveh, we see in verse 41, uh, They will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's saying, look, the men of Nineveh, they repented. The men and women, uh, they turned to God. 
And then he's saying, look, something greater than Jonah is right here before you, you Pharisees. Open your heart. Open your eyes. The Son of Man, God's Son, stood before them and they have no faith and they will not repent like the people of Nineveh did. And so they will be condemned. The, the, the second witness, if you'd like to be brought in now, is the, the Queen of the South here. That's the Queen of Sheba. You can read that, um, her story back in 1 Kings. Um, she's come up from Ethiopia in that story. She's brought as the second witness. And she too will rise at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came to the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. See, these Pharisees have got everything Such privilege, such access to scriptures. Uh, Someone greater than Jonah uh, and Solomon stood before them and yet they refused. They refused to listen. And for that, they'll be condemned. Where does this uh, refusal of the truth lead? Well, I'm going to run on. Look at verse 43 down to verse 45. Jesus employs this kind of little parable now. It seems like slightly tangential, but uh, uh, let me show you where it's going. And it's kind of a summary of all of his recent exchanges with the Pharisees. And he makes a number of points. Firstly, he's showing that there's no room for neutrality here. Coming to church with half-hearted devotion, he's essentially saying there's no devotion at all. No sitting on a fence is permitted with Jesus. Now look at the parable. He speaks of impure spirits, but Jesus is clearly, by the last verse there, applying it to the, the wicked generation which he's mentioned already. That is those who are half-hearted like the Pharisees coming to God, seeking a kind of partial, visible uh, repentance, but they will just leave a void that the devil will exploit. And Jesus uses this little parable as a warning And I suggest some of us take note. Because coming to church, doing Christian stuff, and being around kind of church-going people, Jesus is saying here, is just not enough. If we do not turn to Jesus and be filled by his spirit, leading to a life of complete devotion to Jesus... And if that is you, to put, put you if you like, into the, the, the frame of this little parable that Jesus is saying here, he's saying, well, you're an empty house. And that will go from bad to worse. Look at verse 45. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And that is how it will be with this wicked generation. My friends, this is what happens if you play with God and you play with sin. Straddling the fence and trying to go and be part of Jesus's kind of party over here, but kind of keeping our options open. Well, this parable, if anything, should be a sobering warning to any of us who approach God half-heartedly. The truth is, if you do, if you come to God and don't fully repent, don't fully, if you like, fill your house with love and devotion for him, well, hear the warning. You are an empty house that will go from bad to worse. It's so tempting, isn't it, to come to God and go, hey, I'm really sorry, God, for this stuff in my life, but you kind of keep quiet about this because you kind of enjoy it. You know it doesn't honour God. 
You know your view of possessions, you know your view of holidays, you know your view of money, you know your view of career, you know your view of, ah, but God, I've got control of that. And I don't want to apply your word to that. We play with sin so often, don't we? And I don't mean the obvious sin, though of course we need to fight that. We must tackle it, repent and know the joy of forgiveness. Do you know what I think the biggest danger for all of us is? I think it's just those respectable sins. That is, our lives being more about stuff. Career, cars we drive, bank balances, relationship status. How respectable. If we place any of these things above God in our priorities, in reality, we're just playing. We're playing with God. We're kind of hedging our bets a bit, aren't we? Hoping something better might come along. Please hear the warning here. Refusing the truth wholeheartedly leads to destruction. Also hear the wonderful, gracious alternative. Look at um, verses 46 to 50. And again, this little passage seems like a, a bit of a jump and a bit of a change. Let me read the first couple of verses to you. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. You get the picture? It sounds quite funny, doesn't it? Jesus is interrupted by his mum and his brothers. A little, if you like, aside. Just a a little note. Let's call it a post-it in the middle of this talk. Uh, The Roman Catholic doctrine, they venerate Mary, don't they? And they they call Mary a perpetual virgin. Uh, That was a, a doctrine that came into the Roman Catholic Church in 1902, I believe. How? If, she's got no, if she had, uh, Jesus had numbers of brothers, it's impossible. Jesus might appear, though, to be slightly rude. Look at verse 48. Look what he says. He replied uh, to them, uh, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, imagine your mum turns up at workplace or, or, your her, or at school. Okay, boys, yeah, mum turns up at school. Um, I think most of us, if our mums turn up at work or at school, we think two things. One of two things. Either we think that our whole name is going to be used and we're in serious trouble. I only get called Andrew David Fenton uh, when I'm really naughty. Okay, so uh, there we go. You're either in trouble or something really serious has gone wrong. Is that fair? If your mum turns up at work? Well, is Jesus neglecting his mother and brothers here? Is he breaking the the Old Testament law by not honouring them? And sort of saying, I don't know who my mother's brothers are. No. We read in the other gospel accounts that they were trying to speak. Mark 3, for example, they're trying to speak to Jesus, uh, believing he was out of his mind, claiming all of these things. Mother and brothers are gone to, in a sense, bring him out, take him home. Interestingly, we see, we read later in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, that actually the mother and brothers of Jesus were worshipping him, having been resurrected, believing that he was, he was God. But at this moment, they think he's gone a bit crazy. They're trying to drag him home, probably a bit embarrassed too. And so what Jesus, what's he doing in his response? Look at verse 49 and 50. Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Hey, why? 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And what's Jesus doing here? He's essentially redefining relationships. And this is hard to hear at Christmas. He loves his family, he honours his parents, but he's showing his disciples that there's something more important than even our earthly families. He's shown that being in relationship with God is more than just knowing stuff and coming along and serving and giving. It's more than being a Pharisee, basically. Because verse 50, whoever does the will of, the God of my Father in heaven, that's what matters most. That means you're part of his family, Jesus' family. Obeying the truth of God's word, that is doing the will of God. That is true relationship with God. Now, now let's be clear. Jesus is saying that doing, he isn't saying that doing stuff will get you into heaven. But he is saying doing the will of God that is revealed in the Bible will be evidence that you are part of Jesus' family. But what is, just to finish now, what is, what is doing the will of God? The will of my father here in verse 50. Let me just turn to a, a, kind of a, a few glimpses throughout the New Testament and how other writers and how you know, God tells us what the will of God looks like. Very quickly, in John 6 verse 40, for example, it is looking to the son. It's looking to Jesus, hearing him. And we can do that through his word now today. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, for example, doing the will of God is to be sanctified. That is made more like Jesus as we hear him speak through his word. As we trust him wholeheartedly and live for him completely. In 1 Peter 2, for example, verse 20 and 21, doing the will of God, and here's the shocking one, is being willing to suffer for the glory and honour of God. Now, does that sound like a party that you want to go to? Coming to hear the God, God in his word, being sanctified, being moulded more like Jesus, suffering for his praise and glory. Look at verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is part of Jesus' family. Obeying the truth, doing the will of God may lead to being part of Jesus' family, but it doesn't lead to joy. We saw that refusing the truth leads to destruction. That's one option and Jesus warns against it very strongly, doesn't he? Are we kind of caught in a rock, between a rock and a hard place? Refusing the truth leads to destruction, but we've got suffering over here for following Jesus. That doesn't sound very good, does it? There's one party invitation over here and there's one party invitation. Do you see how easy it is to have one foot there, one foot there, sitting on the fence... Which do we choose? And you need to remember that Jesus made it very clear just last week that you're either with him or you're against him. Obeying the truth, does it really lead to joy? And ultimately, yes, of course, we, and many of us will, will agree that, don't we? Because the heavenly banquet that looks amazing. Heaven looks so good. But often we're just less convinced that wholehearted following Jesus is really worth it now. I think that's where we struggle, don't we? How many Bible passages would I need to read out to convince you that the way of wholehearted devotion to Jesus was the way of joy? How many? 
I think I found 50 in a very quick five minute glance. Let me give you two. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. The word blessing there in the Greek is just simply joy. There's joy for suffering, for following Jesus. Psalm 1, you know it so well, I guess many of you. Blessed, joyful. Joyful is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on the Lord day and night. There's blessing from hearing God speak through his word and living it out wholeheartedly. I could go on and on and on. You see, God says that obeying the truth, doing the will of God, not only is the evidence that you're part of Jesus' family, it is also the best, best way to live. It's the way of greatest blessing. And my question to you is this. I wonder, do you think, do you think you know better than God on this? I know you'll never not say it. But I reckon there's quite a few of us here sometimes. We arrogantly think that. Think of the priorities in your life, both in your heart and in your practice. Is God first? And what evidence do you have to assure you that you are a brother and sister of Jesus? Are you doing the will of the Father? And do you know the joy and the blessing of coming to hear God in his word every day? Are you leading those that you love in that? When you gather as friends, yeah? When did you last speak and commend Jesus? As friends in church, when you gather. Oh, you might go for a drink and that's great. That's wonderful. You might play some sport. That'd be great. All of these things are wonderful. Let's not be weird and, you know, kind of not outside the normal parameters of humanity. But I wonder how many times you've actually commended Christ. Do we know the joy and blessing of being moulded by God through his word and spirit, being sanctified, moulded to become more like Jesus? It's so much better than all the other stuff of our lives. And don't believe me, believe Jesus. Lastly, do you know the joy and blessing of suffering for God's praise and glory? I know it sounds so strange. You know, we we did some flying with some some old ladies from All Saints the other week. You know, in their 70s. And they were walking up to these massive guys, really, really kind of stacked guys. And they, they were saying, come to a carol service. Oh, go on, come with me. You'll be great. You know, fantastic. They were shaking like a leaf when they went out. And some of them got a little bit of abuse, only a tiny bit. We're British after all, aren't we? Not going to get much. They went out terrified. They came back just so joyful. Because they loved it. They were willing to put their, their faith on the line and make Christ known. I wonder, are you speaking of Jesus with your neighbours and colleagues and friends? Refusing the truth leads to destruction. Obeying the truth leads to joy. Please, don't be a Pharisee. Know the joy of 
Responding to Jesus and the eternal banquet that he secured for you in heaven. Know the blessing of wholehearted devotion to Jesus that only and only comes by doing the will of God. Which is hearing Jesus speak. Get serious about opening up the Bible. Encourage each other, lead each other. Don't compromise, don't settle for joyless fence-sitting. Secondly, it's being sanctified, moulded by the Spirit and the Word to be set apart for Jesus. So get serious about which side you're on because there is no neutral ground. And thirdly and lastly, being, being prepared to suffer for his praise and glory. So get, get serious about being prepared to open your mouths And declare that he is king of kings. That he is the son of David that's prepared the royal banquet for you in eternity. And if you're not, then come back to this passage. And you've got to ask some serious questions. Let's pray as we close. Lord God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is hard. And I know that I've had a very heavy heart this week as I've been preparing this talk. But let us not be so wimpish as to not want to be challenged and changed and moulded to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us right now not to be thinking about what others, maybe even in this room, would think of us. Lord, I pray that we would be those who wholeheartedly long to follow you who would give up everything every possession every opportunity in our careers and our lives if it meant that we had to follow you well that's not going to happen I'm sure because we live in a wonderful country with wonderful freedoms and privileges but we know our priorities and please may they be the Lord Jesus may we long to live for him honour him proclaim him I pray And do the will of God, knowing that obeying the truth leads to great joy, now and eternity. Amen.